Hello, and welcome back to the Lobster Podcast. I'm Fallon Glenn. And I'm Ella Whelan. And this is our second lockdown podcast on the lockdown. Back in the autumn of 2020, we at Lobster Films spoke to Dr. Carol Sikora and Professor Sunitra Gupta, two people who were arguing for a different approach to dealing with COVID-19 than simply locking down. But now with almost a year it's been since the first lockdown was announced, we're taking a bit of a different look. We know more about the virus than we did in 2020, certainly. And we now have the vaccine, which is a means of combating the threat of its consequences, keeping people alive and protected. And we've seen, as well as that, the unpredictability of the situation. So whether that be new strains or second waves, there's a lot more on the table to talk about. And so if our last podcast was the case against lockdown, this one isn't exactly the case for lockdown, but it's perhaps the case against the case against lockdown. So we started our last podcast with a recap of the figures, and we'll do the same today. Globally, there have been two and a half million COVID deaths. The death toll in the UK has now surpassed 100,000, which is the highest death rate in the world per capita. More than 10 and a half million people have had their first dose of the coronavirus vaccine, and 500,000 people have had both doses, which is hopeful. Uh, Less hopeful is that unemployment is at roughly 5%. This is the highest figure for five years. It means that 1.74 million people are unemployed in Britain. Uh, This is predicted to rise to nearly 8% by the middle of this year and is mostly affecting the hospitality sector, the retail sector and entertainment with more young and working class people bearing the brunt of this. And consensus about what's best for the nation is still hugely fragmented. So on the surface, it looks like the discussion about how to deal with COVID-19 is split predominantly into two groups. The Gabriel Scali independent sagers who want tighter, longer, stricter lockdowns and the Pierce Corbins who are willing to get arrested to push for an end to lockdowns altogether. But in reality, with the British general public consistently polling in favour of more reasonable restrictions and the slow pace of Boris Johnson's roadmap back to normality, there's actually a lot of nuance here that's getting missed. And so during the week that London was snowed under, I made the climb up several fairly icy North London hills to talk to Dr Michael Fitzpatrick, a GP who was working in the hot hub of Stamford Hill, which was actually one of the worst hit neighbourhoods globally, I think second only to a very poor neighbourhood in Brazil. But aside from his first-hand experience in dealing with COVID-19 up close, treating patients and now working on the vaccination programme, I wanted to ask Michael about the way in which this pandemic compared to other societal moments of crisis. In particular, I was interested in his book, The Tyranny of Health, Doctors and the Regulation of Lifestyle, which he published in 2000, which looks at the way in which our changing relationship, or actually more accurately our obsession with, health has come to have an effect on politics. As a note of interest as well, an important one, Michael was also a key figure in debunking the false link between the MMR vaccine and autism, helping to discredit Andrew Wakefield, who, rather disappointingly, has made something of a comeback among some nuttier anti-vax pockets of people during this pandemic. There are a number of issues with the Great Barrington Declaration. The main signatories of it were well-regarded academic epidemiologists, of which I am not. I am a jobbing GP. So I've no academic expertise in this area at all. I've followed these controversies for some years and I've worked as a GP in relation to COVID. It wasn't that they failed to convince me. It was that they failed to convince the vast majority of their scientific peers in the validity of the position that they put forward on a number of particular issues. And this was published in the medical journals, 
in a wide number of different platforms, the British Medical Journal, the Lancet, uh, various uh, overseas. And the, the position put forward by the people that I regard as authoritative uh, experts in this field was that the, the, um, the claim that it was a viable proposition to isolate a small proportion or relatively... Well, one of the things was they never specified what proportion of the population would need to be uh, the, the target of this focused protection or targeted protection. But various estimates have come up to 20-30% of the, of the population. How that could be achieved? Because the simple practicality is as you get older and more infirm, you require more social contact with younger people, not less because you require people often people looking after you in various ways according to your level of functioning yourself. But the older and more infirm you get, the more vulnerable you get to infectious disease, the more contacts you have. Therefore, the, the practicalities of isolating that population from an infectious disease which is highly transmissible and highly lethal, particularly in that age group, were regarded by the vast majority of experts in the field as completely impracticable. And what was striking about the Gate Barrington proponents is they never answered these criticisms. And they never came out with a practical proposal of how this could be achieved. I didn't quite appreciate what the Great Barrington Declaration meant in practice at the time, because on the face of it, you think, well, yeah, you just section off society. And, you know, I th- we talked about this last time in the in the podcast with Sakura and Gupta, the whole sort of pathologization or the, the, like making out that herd immunity is this horrendously evil thing by members of the press and also some politicians was ridiculous but actually if you were to section off the elderly and vulnerable in society I mean the point that Mike makes is that the older you get the more you need intervention from younger people you know whether that's to help you to the shops or to wipe your backside or whatever it is you know you need more you need more intergenerational mixing as you grow older but also I didn't quite appreciate what it would mean to lock off that section of society I mean where would we do it where would we put them would you just kind of ship them all off to the Isle of Wight you know the the practical implications were quite serious and I think I, I have some sympathy with the argument that that wasn't really thought out on the other hand I am still I still feel unsatisfied by the fact that there would be moving forward no process for sectioning you know parts of society or for having a more focused approach because the threat of I mean we're still under the threat of another lockdown despite the fact that we've got this roadmap there are still you know people like Jonathan Van Tam coming on the television saying be careful because if you go too quick and you meet too many people then there'll be another lockdown and you think you know whatever's happened in the last year moving forward you can't have any more blanket lockdowns and so that the inflexibility of having some kind of focus approach is irritating and it's also I mean so much of this pandemic has been us dealing with the kind of tools that we have which is unsatisfactory so for example it would have been much better if we had a functioning uh, more organized more equipped more staffed NHS but we don't but you know that's a problem that you can fix in the in exactly, the, this year yeah. That, yeah. that that doesn't have to be and so if you had more resources if you had for example more resources around um getting people tested in care homes then it is m- much more likely that you could have a focused approach of shielding and testing care home and care home residents and care home staff and so maybe that's not quite the great Barrington declaration but it's something like it what i want in my politics is aspiration and i want that aspiration to be focused towards greater equality and what's troubling to me is that for most of us we don't even have the will to discuss a better way 
you know, the mere fact that the NHS wasn't equipped to deal with this is an entire conversation in itself. And it's something we need to seriously, for once and for all, sort out. Like, I know there's, there's no magic. We don't have magic of millions of health workers waiting in the wings to come to the immediate rescue of everyone who could possibly be shielding. But the question remains, we weren't able to do it this time. Are we taking the steps to do it next time? What are we doing right now that's going to mitigate these roadblocks to focus protection in the future? The thing that really sticks in my craw about the Great Barrington Declaration, I mean, Michael just said it himself, those academics who started it were and are respected academics in their field. I mean, Sunitra Gupta, who we just interviewed in our last podcast, is by all accounts a politically left-leaning individual. She believes in the welfare state. You know, she's been asking why our NHS is so underfunded that we can't deal with it. And yet, those individuals who should be her political allies are basically going above and beyond to discredit her. And I really feel for the woman. You know, I was reading an interview with her in a journal and, you know, she was asked if she was surprised by the pushback and she said yes you know all I'm doing is offering a different perspective I think everyone in government and policies should be banging their heads together to imagine a better way forward to make this more palatable for everyone and not just palatable because of the inconvenience of the lockdown it's because lockdown is literally killing people in their tens of thousands I remember when we were deciding to do the previous podcast and when we were talking to Sikora and Gupta and particularly we wanted to look at lockdown sceptics because, you know, a lot has changed in the last few months and it's gotten a little bit better. But certainly back in the autumn when we were coming out of summer and it looked like we were going, there was threats of the second wave. And actually, I remember when we did the podcast, we were sort of saying it can't be that there'll be a second wave. Nobody really knew what was going on, to yeah. be quite honest. And Mike makes a very strong point that in particular, Gupta and Carl Hennigan and some other people have been proven to be wrong because they said things that like there wasn't going to be a second wave. They said things like there was herd immunity in London. And, you know, I was talking to Mike and he said, well, that's obviously been proven to not be true. But the the thing that I think is uh, quite corrosive out of that is that rather than learning from mistakes, there's been this suggestion that especially people like Carol Sakura and Sunitra Gupta are either responsible for deaths from what they've said yeah. or that they are, um, they should be stopped from saying anything else or that they're dangerous and it's that uh, you know that hostility to kind of having any any alternatives or an open debate about these things that is far more dangerous because you have to be open to all and any solutions i mean isn't that the whole point of having a scientific approach you talk about expertise i think one of the interesting features of the whole covid thing is the relatively high quality of scientific debate and public involvement in it by contrast with both the past and also by contrast with the quality of the political debate, I might say, in relation to the whole COVID controversy. But if you look, people have said, oh, there hasn't been much debate about COVID. I think it's been very impressive. One of the interesting things has been the contribution of social media to the discussion of COVID. In relation to HIV AIDS controversies, you know, there are all those Duesberg and Carrie Mullis, the so-called denialists who challenged the mainstream science and created a lot of confusion about the understanding of the science of HIV. It took years for them to be challenged. There was very little public access to it. Now the controversies are right out in the open. People complain about SAGE. In the early days, SAGE membership wasn't disclosed and their minutes weren't available. Under pressure by May, they're all in the public domain. You can see that, read all the SAGE papers, you can, there's independent SAGE, they've got their, their, everybody's got their website, everybody can look at it, you can look at Unheard, you can hear Sunetra Gupta and Hennigan interviewed on an endless different channels, TV, news media, alternative media, the quality of scientific debate has been very impressive, and things come out from day to day, here's claim, counterclaim, issues about the vaccines, 
I mean, the very production of the vaccine has been a great scientific triumph, it might be said, which was different from previous things. Are the vaccines effective in this situation? Are they effective in that situation? Everybody can look at all these papers. Science Media Centre churns out every day of the week the new reports that are published, indicating some of them are pre-print, some of them have been peer-reviewed, some of them haven't. Here are the comments of various authorities. You know, some of them say it's good, some of them say, take your pick. I found it extremely helpful and stimulating level of scientific controversy and debate about this. In the same way that we got blindsided by the new strain, and that took pretty much everyone by surprise and was and and had dire consequences, it could have also gone a different way. The inability to be flexible in all of this uh, discussion about how we handle lockdown. On the one hand, you can understand it because you've got to pick a way to do it and you've got to stick with it. And I have limited sympathy for the government with that. But on the other hand, I think they could have been more open to other suggestions. And, and more importantly, when people make other suggestions and they get it wrong, you don't necessarily say you're a menace to society. I feel like it would be nice to live in a society where you're allowed to make mistakes. I don't think there's much room for that anymore. I'm forever hearing people saying, I'd like you to apologise for X, Y, Z. But actually, when they get that apology, they're not really that interested because, and I, I genuinely believe this, I think so much of, you know, politics and journalism today is about shameless self-promotion, kind of elevating yourself, your party, whatever. I don't believe it's actually really about um, constructive debate. We kind of talked about this a bit last time, the political tribalism surrounding COVID and how it was unhelpful that one camp was said to be about preserving life and one camp was about preserving the pub. It's a nonsense. And as you say, some people are preoccupying themselves with the ridiculous question of just how many lives have been lost to these dissenting voices. And other people like Gupta herself, I think, are instead worrying very much about the predicted hundreds of thousands of lives that are being totally demolished by this blanket lockdown. I don't really think this is news, like this black and white approach to anything has pretty much been pervading our public consciousness for ages. But it kind of feels to me like it's almost peaked a bit. If you're on the wrong side, even if you've always been on the right side, it doesn't really matter. It holds no water. You know, you chime a different tune and you're out. My big worry really is that it's going to change the way we discuss and come up with new ideas. If there's a lot of hostility around voicing a certain opinion and the majority feel that they can or that they know they might be ridiculed for saying or believing something, then they won't. They'll be too afraid to challenge it. And that's kind of one sided discussion that's monopolized COVID is what's happened. And it's a big problem because if you're too afraid to challenge an idea, then it becomes impossible to think of a better way. I think we not only do we need to think of a better way, but we need to feel safe enough to brainstorm a better way. And that's not just about COVID, by the way, that's for everything. One of the most frustrating things that I've seen happen over the last kind of few months as the pandemic has worn on and as lockdowns have been repeated is the fact that the really extreme pro-lockdown kind of scaremongery side, whether that be journalists asking for the ramping up of measures after every press conference to um, some politicians, sort of, as, particularly as it happens on the Labour Party, kind of saying that what Boris Johnson is doing is inadequate in terms of we've got to lock down harder, stronger, faster, all the time, that that side have been able to monopolise the idea that they're acting in the societal good, that they are, they are the kind of pro-collective side and that the lockdowns get are just sort of individualistic and and want to care about their ability to go to the pub. And the, the reason why I'm most angry about that is because I actually think there's been a really infantile discussion and description of what civil liberties and individual freedom means on the lockdown sceptic side. So I've been in countless debates with people where people come out with the kind of line of, I am a, you know, 
49-year-old or 52-year-old, very healthy person. And I don't, I'm willing to risk my health. I'm willing to risk catching COVID. And what's the problem? I should be allowed to go about my daily life. And it's, it's a really, um, it's frustrating because it's a really, it's kind of being willfully ignorant about the nature of this disease. No one sensible has believed that, for example, us healthy young people are going to drop dead from COVID. I mean, there was a time right at the beginning where you thought, oh, I don't know what this is going to do. But I mean, a few months into it, you realise that the numbers show that it's only affecting the elderly and the infirm fatally, particularly, um, and making them really ill. But the whole point is, as Mike says, you've got to, you've got to, this isn't a kind of one man is an island thing. It's a, it's a societal problem. So this infectious disease emerged uh, in the end of last year, uh, end of December in China, and rapidly spread around the world. And this is a novel disease to which the community of the world had no previous immunity. So, uh, and it was clear at a very early stage that two important things about it. One is it is relatively highly transmissible, three times more transmissible than flu is. That was the R, R number. Each person tends to infect three other people. And secondly, that it was relatively highly lethal, about 10 times as lethal as flu of us, some Earlier, the earlier fatality rates were slightly higher than that because there wasn't clear how widely disseminated the infection was in the community. Now, the risk to any anybody, any individual in that situation can say to them, well, the risk to me is not very great. But it isn't, as numerous people have pointed out, it isn't only about me. It is about, and as one of the issues of COVID is that, as well known, it can be transmitted by people who have either no symptoms or very low level of symptoms, and even before they develop symptoms, that creates a very particular problem about controlling its spread. And it does mean to say that it is necessary to have constraints on everybody's liberties in order to protect a small proportion of people who uh, are likely to be particularly vulnerable and suffer the very serious consequences from it. So it seems to me that everybody has to, you have to accept in that situation in society. It's not just, it can be left to your individual judgment. It's, it's, uh, anybody is resistant to that idea of having their liberties curtailed in that way, but there's no other, no other response to it. Therefore, it's of great importance that those measures are subject to a high level of democratic control and accountability. Now, that's another whole issue to what extent that did prevail. And that's, there is no doubt problems about the way in which this society is governed democratically in relation to all sorts of things and how people participate and share in the decisions about, about them. But, um, and, you know, the restraints on civil liberties and economic activities and social activities of COVID made it particularly, that those deficits particularly important and need to be challenged. But it doesn't seem to me to be helpful to deny that it was necessary to have such constraints. There's no other alternative to that in that sort of situation. The whole thing about individual freedom, and we've covered this in terms of, um, you know, some of the stuff that we did in relation to politics and Brexit, in relation to feminism. I mean, there are so many areas in which you think the oh, free speech in particular being a key example. You don't fight for free speech just so that you as an individual can mouth off and say rude things and, and you know, wax lyrical about whatever it is you want. I mean, that's part of it, but it's mainly part of the fact that you are interested in the collective, you know, the collective view of political discussion or political debate being healthier. So you you want the broader debate to be a better one and be a freer one. So the starting point is individual freedom, but it's broadening out. And I think that there's been a kind of a real narrowing of of 
how we understand why the crackdowns on civil liberties are damaging. You know, it, it is selfish for you to get kind of angsty about the fact that you can't go to the pub and that, that you should be allowed to go to the pub and then risk old people dying. That is selfish. But what's not selfish is saying, well, hang on a minute. This isn't all just pockets of things happening individually. Let's look at the holistic picture. Yeah. What happens if you close pubs for a year? People lose their jobs. What exactly. happens if you do this on a mass scale? It's not just all individual people. There is an effect on mental health or on care or on, you know all these things it's about looking at it broader but the I want to shake some lockdown skeptics sometimes because you just think you are allowing yourself to be pigeonholed as this kind of with this really shallow idea of what individual freedom means and what it's worth and I think in the long run that's going to be a problem. It's funny earlier Michael was talking about the curtailing of these freedoms being necessary but how they should always be subject to democratic control and accountability and what he's really talking about there is trust and I think the breakdown of trust between you know, your average working Brit and the those institutions that govern us is pretty palpable at this last year. I have been particularly surprised at how the Labour Party and the sort of left-wing commentariat have just haven't been speaking up for the people they were pretty much created to represent. You know, there's there's been like almost no pushback. It is possible to be really worried about the virus and really deeply saddened by the loss of life, whilst at the same time really want to protect people who are going to lose out because of lockdown measures. I think what we're actually seeing instead is this collective sigh of, you know, oh gosh, isn't it so sad about education and and all the redundancies? Isn't it terrible how women and minorities and the working classes are really bearing the brunt of this? Gosh, isn't it so sad? But it's a necessary evil. There are going to be knock-on effects on this. So when the pandemic is over, and touch wood, please God, whatever kind of superstition you want to put on it, that it will be over in you know a few months once we get everyone vaccinated. But then there's going to be the aftershock of okay, how do you deal with uh, person A who's been was on furlough for a few months, but then got sacked, and and you know now has spent seven months out of work, and you know has developed anything from anxiety right up to serious mental health issues, and you know whatever no, you can you, know. you can can pluck yeah, examples like exactly. that yeah but that it's the truth of what's happening still now the most frustrating thing is there hasn't been that kind of balance between let's let's kind of talk holistically about the picture um you still have that drive from the kind of more pro-lockdown populist position which says if you question lockdown you are putting people in danger It's been fascinating to see how risk has been discussed throughout the pandemic. You know, I think it's been a failing among the pro-lockdown politicians and even commentators to pretend that all risk is inherently bad. This idea of zero COVID is nuts, you know, as if we'd have to eradicate everything before we were able to open up society again. I just don't think it's feasible. Um, Risk is something that our next guest has spoken about a lot. His name is Tom Chivers, and he's a broadcaster and science editor for Unheard. And he made a Radio 4 documentary looking at the issue of risk back in May of last year. This is what he had to say to us. Even when Britain is hugely vaccinated and largely safe and we and everyone is, then we have the problem that the, the world will be still breeding new, you know, I, I someone was saying to me that the serology data says, suggests there have been 300 million cases in India alone. And that's a lot of chances for a new strain to break out. And that's, you know, it doesn't matter what we do here to some degree, we're 1% of the world population. And, and it, you know, there, there will be other strains coming from other parts of the world. They will come probably a year or two in which we in the UK are largely safe 
safe and there are relatively few cases, relatively few deaths, and we're sort of monitoring things, but it's and you know, but basically living normal lives. But on the other hand, it's still raging in the developing world quite a lot. What do we do about travel? What do we do about borders? And I suspect that you end up with some sort of rapid testing on the borders, vaccine passports sort of arrangement. I, I it would be my, would be my guess. Nowhere nowhere is safe until everywhere is safe is a bit glib. Britain can be quite safe without everywhere being safe, but not, the, the disease isn't dealt with until it's dealt with everywhere. That's, that, that, that definitely is true. Well, that is the kind of million-dollar question, isn't it? What do you do? What, ha- what precedent does this set for the future? What are the things that we implement today going to sound like or smell like in a few months' time? And how will we deal with it? And the most difficult thing is not to be stuck in the present because obviously we've got daily death rates, daily case rates. Everything is very much in the 24 hours that you're in. And there's not been a huge amount of scope of looking forward to uh, what this means, you know, whether that's the economic impact or also the question of future pandemics and that's the 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 fear that I've got in the bottom of my stomach is will we just repeat what we did in 2020 and 2021 every time there's a new virus we have a stark inequality in this country and every time we have any sort of crisis that inequality is put under a microscope it would be nice if for once we could go through a crisis where the same people who lose out all the time continue to lose out again but that's not going to be fixed overnight when we're not going to combat all of the the deep social inequality in society. So you're right. What are we going to do instead? That means that we don't have to make the same mistakes this time for the next time. My inherent fear about what precedent this sets is he reminded me of the specificity of the moment that we're in and the uniqueness of it because, you know, we've been in it for over a year now or almost a year, whatever, how many months and months and months. And it feels like you can forget what life was like even in 2019. Um, But we haven't come across something like this before. And it is very difficult to look back or look forward when you're in the eye of the storm. Well, one of the things I've learned from my actually now rather long standing engagement in these scientific controversies, going back to HIV, AIDS, mad cow disease, CJD, all these other disease scares and everything else, is that you have to, and this is one of the the legacies I've also learned from Marxism, is that you have to approach each, each thing in its specificity. Each one is a specific issue. You have to look at it in terms of the particular particularities of the threat in question and the social political context in which it takes place. So you can't generalise in the way I think you're seeking. I think that's been the problem with this controversy. People have applied a framework to the COVID thing, which emerged from the past in response to an entirely different situation. And that's led to a lot of people getting led astray here and found themselves lost in response to it. And I fear that's not a helpful way of doing it. And actually, Tom Chivers had a had a kind of similar point because we asked him about the relationship between science and politics. And, you know, there's this very hackneyed phrase now at this point that just makes me want to get sick every time I hear a politician saying, you know, we are following the science as if as if this was a science kind of is fixed. Yeah. Or like it's an apolitical realm that we're living in. And it doesn't matter that it's the Conservative Party in power and Boris Johnson has no impact on this. And, you know, there's there's no question they are just, you know, Chris Whitty says something and Boris Johnson says, yeah, put it into policy, which is just such a lie and a fiction and a and complete distortion of what's going on. Um, but, but what is the impact of the merging of politics and science of making health the primary central thing from which you make all other decisions, you know, the health of a nation, whether it be in a pandemic or actually out of a pandemic? And he had this to say. 
on one level, you can never follow the science. You make a decision and say you want to achieve some goal X, you can then, science can then tell you these are the best ways of achieving goal X, right? You know, it can't tell you what your goal should be. That said, sometimes I think in a pandemic, the goals are fairly sort of unambiguous. Most people would agree that we really want to get the number of cases down very heavily and not end up killing loads of old people. And so, so when in certain situations, when goals are quite broadly agreed, then you can follow the science. I make inverted comma gestures, you know, insofar as we all agree that we want to get to place X and the science can show us fairly clearly what the best way is there. So that, you know, that's, it's a question of like goals and means and things. Do I worry about it? I mean, I worry that it can be a way of shirking responsibility for decisions. Again, that's, you know, in less profound, less sort of trivial areas like climate change, again, you have a, a philosophical or a political discussion about what the right thing to do is. Do we want to maximize economic growth including in developing world which will necessarily lead to increased carbon emissions or do we want to minimize carbon emissions at the cost of poor people getting richer you know and i think these are real philosophical questions that you can't avoid if you say i'm following the science you're implicitly saying i have chosen goal x without really admitting it and then saying and science is the best way of getting me to goal x but i'm not really admitting that we're making a political decision that goal x is the right way to go but that said a lot of the time most people will sort of agree that yes goal x in uh, saving lives avoiding catastrophic climate damage whatever most people will agree on some broad version of them so there might be a lot of situations in which following the science and is is actually a perfectly legitimate thing to do but i suspect this gets us into a gigantic conversation of political philosophy that is possibly beyond the scope of a short podcast i don't know one of the things of the of a direct impact of the pandemic not impact of the lockdown which we talked about in the last podcast with gupta and sakura of economic destruction and the interruption of people's social lives and how this changes our ability to be a public again i mean we forget what being atomized actually does to you but one impact of the the pandemic itself and its lasting effect is this rather terrifying notion of long covid which i have to admit you know, I, I don't really fully understand. It's this kind of threat hanging over you that you know that COVID-19 is much, much, much more likely to kill or see very seriously make ill older infirm people. But then anecdotally, I know a few young people who I would generally class as quite fit who are still wheezing and spluttering and not being able to go for long walks without having to lie down, you know, basically having what's called long COVID after having coronavirus. And so the question of, of, of the after effect of this are uh, something that you have to seriously tackle with. It's the one thing and the little fear in the back of my head that says, don't be so blasé about COVID. Don't be so blasé about catching it, of which I have been for quite a few months thinking, you know, I just want to get it over with. There's this sort of spectre that's hanging over you saying, well, you might catch long COVID. Yeah, long COVID is, is an interesting one. I I feel like I'll, I'll be like burned at the stake for saying this. But I, I had uh, two years ago, I had something called functional neurological disorder, which is a huge, um, you know, it's a separate podcast, but essentially it is extreme psychosomatic illness where in its most simplest term I had um, partial loss of sight in my left eye and loss of feeling and some movement in the whole side of my left body which at first we thought might be multiple sclerosis and then it turned out to be functionally driven which meant that the system the the mechanism in my brain had shut off but there was no pathology there was no disease. I was reading a new scientist um, look in a kind of deep dive into long COVID and it is 
there's a big question mark over it because there, there seems to be nothing uniform about what causes it. You know, no age, no gender, and not even severity of disease. Many symptoms are very uh, kind of sensory focused. They sounded very similar to FND. So I contacted a neurologist that I had been working with and I said, look, I've got a question. I don't know if this is sacrilegious, but do you think that some of long COVID might be functional in nature? And essentially what drives functional disorders is, is that the fact that the brain works on prediction. The reason you know that you can lift your mobile phone without flinging it to Timbuktu is because your brain already can predict the weight of your mobile phone. So if you think very strongly that, you know, if you get something in your eye and you think very strongly in the crassest terms that you might go blind, what can actually happen is your brain can manifest that prediction. So one of the working hypotheses in medicine is that long COVID can be split into two groups. Obviously, there is real tangible long COVID, people who suffered severe infection and have measurable differences in their lungs, for instance. But there's also a large proportion uh, of these cases which will be functional in nature. The, the two situations you describe are both real, whether it's directly caused by the physical effect of the virus or is it some wider psychological manifestation. They are both real issues and they are both potentially causes of very significant long-term disease and disability. For me, there's two fascinating things about it. One, you have to be honest in your reporting to allow people to have the tools they need to try to be cautious around a virus that is fatal to so many and can cause long-lasting damage to others. But you you have to toe the line at not being too hysterical because you then ignite uh, very deep-rooted fears and anxiety in huge amounts of the population. Well, one concern that a lot of people have is the question of sociability. And I'm worried about it to a certain extent because it is still, for me, completely alien, even though we've been doing this for a year now, for people to, you know, when people like jump off the pavement away from you or, you know, when an old person, understandably so, sort of shrinks away from you when you're walking past them in the aisle in the shop or things like that. It's just, it's a horrible, horrible feeling and it makes you feel like a monster. And I long for the time in which you could stand next to someone on the tube and even if they had intense BO and bad breath you didn't mind because it was just part of being in public life but the question is will that return and I think there's been one gripe I've had with um, some elements of the lockdown skeptic groups is that there's been is it fair to say maybe it is a, a certain amount of hysteria about what happens to sociability so there is a truth that there is trends of atomization have deepened and uh, it's not a good thing even if you don't have for example a serious mental health problem to be locked away on your own I'm sick of hearing my own thoughts I'm sick of being alone it's not good for me I'm not a very interesting person I found out over the last year but on the other hand last weekend suddenly the temperature tips up over 10 degrees in London and the parks are swamped and you know that people aren't part of the same household and you know that people are you know quietly doing things behind the scenes and you know actually I'm okay with that because on the one hand you know we already said polling shows that as much as polling is in any way to be trusted that most people are okay with the restrictions they want a slow release all of that kind of thing but you know in terms of people's desire for social interaction I don't think that has gone away and whether it's sort of teenagers going on about how excited they are for festivals when they return to adults talking about going back to you know the playground with their kids or having dinner parties again or whatever it is it's a it's kind of like the way I think about it is if you talk it into existence then it will be so the more we say society will bounce back we can go back to normal then it will be but if you kind of say oh my god we're all going to be these aliens that won't ever be able to relate to each other again then then there's the possibility that that might happen as well I mean it's my birthday on April 12th which is the day that the um, we open back up and I have booked two tables and I'm going to get absolutely trolled <laughs> and I cannot wait to go out. 
I'm I'm less worried about sociability coming back. I think humans are pro-social creatures. I think we thrive on connection. Uh, I, I was worried about us being kept apart, but I'm less worried about us getting back together because I think naturally people will. I think the sad thing is that for so many people who really struggled it, throughout this pandemic who might not still be here to talk about it, I don't want that to happen again. I, I don't think we should forsake them. I think we'll go back to society and we will fuse together as one, but we should really not make the same mistakes the next time. There's more. To, there's more to this than just the number of number of people who die. There's the number of um, people who end up in hospital, and the number of people who end up in ICU, which is about how you know, which then is about how, how much pressure there is on the NHS. The um, and of course, if the NHS is overwhelmed, then deaths go back up. So uh, the the median age of people in ICUs is about sixty two. Only about a third of them are over seventy. So if we were to let, if we were to just vaccinate the over seventies and then let it go running around the um, population you know, willy nilly, then we would suddenly see a huge spike in hospitalizations. The NHS would get overwhelmed, and that would lead to some significant problems in terms of the NHS getting overwhelmed and then de- more deaths, more pressure, more having to go back into lockdown. The other issue, which is mutant strains. So the more people there are who have the disease, the more chances there are for the disease to mutate and to get new new versions which are more resistant to the to the vaccine. And I've heard it described that every single new infection is like buying the virus a lottery ticket. Each time it only has to get lucky once, and then you get some really complete vaccine escape variant which is um, which is completely resistant to the va- to the vaccine, and that, that that would be a disaster, right? Okay, so I mean, obviously, we all understand that lockdown is horrible. It's not that there's one pe- group of people who say that lockdown is great and lovely, and we all enjoy it, and then people. But the the point is if you come out of this prematurely and then cases skyrocket nhs is overwhelmed new versions mutate and we need to update the vaccines then we have to go back into lockdown again and probably for i mean you know it seems very likely to me that they'll be have to go in for longer again if we have to go through the, at least some of the process of, of re, retooling the vaccines to make them work on new variants and to get the cases back down to manageable numbers again so it strikes me as very likely that any future lockdown that we have to go back into if we come out of this early will be longer we'll spend up more end up spending more time time in lockdown than we would have done otherwise if we'd just waited a bit longer. The big question is how do we get out of this? I have to admit that I'm torn because on the one hand, I'm in general, uh, I, I have changed my mind, I think, and I don't know if you have, Felon, but from where I was back in October in terms of, I think, the new strain really chasing me. Um, and the the second wave really chasing me. And I don't think there should be any, this is the whole point of what we've been saying, there should be no shame or, um, or embarrassment or sort of guilt about people saying, well, I thought one thing at one point and I think another thing at this point. Um, and I, I'm on the whole in favour of the idea that we have a staged return to normality but with the proviso that there is as much as possible, as quickly as possible, a return to normality because you understand the gravity of the effects of lockdown on people's lives, on people's jobs, on on the health of society more generally. But, you know, the difficult thing is there's so much in Boris Johnson's roadmap that's just ludicrous like it's just stupid and people and it makes people lose confidence in the program of the government to suggest that for example you can get a takeaway coffee and sit on a bench but not a takeaway pint i mean little things like that but it just shows that this is there are stupid political decisions being made on the basis of this you know why can't you let people meet up outside now it's getting light the weather's getting better why can't you have more scope for people to meet up outside quicker and therefore they're less likely to meet up inside i mean it's just the, the, the thing that we talked about actually in the last podcast the whole nature of being able to trust 
the public to make sensible decisions is still lacking. We haven't learned from that. There's still a, a lack for that. And while I wouldn't, you know, a, a number of months ago, I was much more anti-lockdown than I am now because I think we've learned more. But on the other hand, the trend to have a safety first approach in a way that just kind of negates the whole idea that there's a balance and a balancing of risk to be had here is still a problem. On the other hand, practically, the way we get out of this is through the vaccine programme. And it's something that Britain might have had the worst death toll. And there'll be and there should be a kind of post-mortem to find out why that is the case and look at all the data once we're out of this thing and can actually look at it with a bit of bit of space and time. But one thing that the UK has done really well is, for example, take a punt on AstraZeneca and be very proactive in getting the vaccine regulated and getting it done quickly. I mean, comparisons with the European Union show how bad some other countries and some other institutions have been at rolling this out. The vaccine is a really good thing practically, but that isn't going to fix any of the other problems. So you can't, the jab in the arm is not going to fix the question, the broader, more important, actually, political questions of how do you reopen society? How do you fix unemployment? How do you answer questions from a you know in a large part a despondent despondent sections of the public who have had either a terrible time over the last year and have been sort of tortured indoors with kids trying to homeschool them or without a job or being locked away or on the other hand have spent the last year being furloughed from their crappy jobs and are suddenly realizing that they don't want to you know do the kind of menial work for the terrible wage that they did beforehand and they don't want to go back to normal there's massive questions thrown up by this that the vaccine program will not necessarily answer For me, have my opinions changed since the last podcast? Yeah, I think that they have. I think I accept now that the lockdown was unavoidable uh, for, you know, long periods of time. I accept that we didn't have a lot of the provisions in place to be able to deal with it better from healthcare workers in the wings to funding to the data and to the knowledge, intimate knowledge of how the virus would behave. So I have on that front changed it. Where I haven't is that I just still don't think it's acceptable to swap X lives now for X lives later. I think that we need to do better on that front. And something that that really remains for me, we spoke about this a lot in our last podcast as well, was is this kind of obsession that, that seems to take precedent now in the media with identifying people who say anything different than what the current line is. And not only just saying we disagree with them, but going out of our way to destroy their lives or destroy their reputations, I still believe is, you know, a really ill-advised approach in the long term. I really stand by that. And I think that Doing that really reinforces the suspicions of certain groups of people. I mean, just look what's happening with the vaccine and, and the sort of the, the worry and suspicion of, of many people who don't want to take it. You know, if you look at the history of vaccinations, it's not always been in the best interest of people who are being vaccinated. And I think that there are groups in society, particularly working classes, who, irrespective of your race, who are kind of by their very definition, suspicious of certain institutions. I mean, I know that from my own family. And I think that, you know, suspicion of, of something like science or medicine or, you know, the vaccine, whatever it might be, is like a logical extension, a logical byproduct of, of shutting down debate. Was well, this idea that you kind of you have to silence all different opinions and only give them access to one source of information because the insinuation is otherwise that they'll make the wrong decision, that you exactly. have to kind of be cosseted. And that we know that the more particularly when it comes to, for example, the kind of more extreme end of people who, you know, might be sort of interested in conspiracy theory around either the vaccine or the pandemic, that the more you say, put your fingers in your ear and say, we can't handle hearing this, it's dangerous, the more conspiracy theory flourishes. You know, I was making a case the other week for taking the vaccination to my family. 
And in response, my dad sent me an article about the vaccine. So the government published like the number of deaths and adverse reactions on their website. And uh, someone had taken that data and written an article about it. And I think when probed about these deaths and these reactions, someone from either the government or the vaccination team, I can't quite remember, said, well, you know, some of these people who died were sick before they got the vaccine or they died from something else, not the vaccine. And whilst I have absolutely no doubt that that's true, the author of this article really sneered because early on, as I'm sure we'll all remember, that many deaths were being wrongly recorded as COVID. You know, someone had a car accident or they died from COPD or dementia or whatever it might have been. They were being recorded as COVID deaths. And when this was challenged by either family members or members of the public or the press, it wasn't given quite the same sway. And the author of this article made reference to that. So, you know, you kind of can't have it both ways. Talking about the, the trust, the, talking about people having inherent distrust in institutions, I'm, I'm not surprised that a lot of individuals who are feeling like all the, quote, dissenting voices that they trust are being silenced, articles disappearing, interviews being taken off YouTube, people being uninvited to radio programs, you know, whatever it might be. I just think it's unsurprising there's a complete breakdown of trust. And by the way, just as an aside, I did a little Google experiment last night before we recorded this where I googled several different questions relating to the lockdown. So for instance, do lockdowns work? Can children spread the virus? Will high vaccination uptake keep the spread at bay? No matter what I posted, I got considered answers and studies that would, had been undertaken by real, highly regarded institutions, real professors and doctors, each of whom made a really genuinely strong case for each side on every question. So to just continuously tell the public, who are also, by the way, doing this, doing their own research, that whatever they stumble across is wrong, and whoever isn't saying what The Guardian or Channel 4 News or whoever is saying is wrong, I mean, I don't even have to tell you why that's a bad idea. It's obvious. If you want to listen to all our podcasts, including our bonus tracks of what we've done over the last few months during lockdown, head to lobsterfilms.co.uk, where you can also check out our political documentaries on things like feminism and Brexit. Follow us on SoundCloud, find us on YouTube and check us out. Like, share and subscribe. But Although we don't subscribe to anything. Subscribe to nothing. But like... <laughs>